0: Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Teg Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com.
1: Anybody who wants to be president, who spends their life in pursuit Of an ambition that is so fierce that it never stops until you reach that point. There's something driven about them. There's an engine that can't stop.
2: Hello, welcome to Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm your host, Ezra Klein. Uh, We are a couple weeks out of an election. We are in a Crazy political era. Crazy. And so it's nice for a moment to step out of this exact moment and think about America at other times of stress. Look at times when we have come through, I I would say, trials quite a bit deeper than the ones we're going through now with a lot more grace than at the moment it seems we are capable of. But hopefully that is going to prove wrong. I had the opportunity recently to interview Doris Kearns Goodwin, the Pulitzer Prize-winning presidential historian at the Six and I Synagogue, one of my favorite venues in Washington, D.C. You're going to hear my interview with her here and also a a great Q&A after. She's just written a a remarkable new book called Leadership in Turbulent Times. It traces the growth um, and the dark nights of the soul and then the eventual elevation, um, the great works of four different presidents, FDR, Teddy Roosevelt, Abraham Lincoln, and Lyndon Johnson. Also, Doris Kearns Goodwin, if you ever get a chance at a doctor, you'll hear it here. Just a great person to talk to. I one day aspire to have as many wonderful stories for any one thing you might ask me as Goodwin has for literally anything you can ask her. It was an incredible joy to get to have this conversation with her, and I hope you all enjoy it too. Before we get to the show, I have a request. I have been thinking about how to think about the community of people who listen to the show. I get wonderful emails from you. I meet some of you on the street. It means a lot to me. But also, you all are great. You're smart and you're thoughtful and you engage with this in a a way that I find really moving. And I want to think of a way to build something out of this, whether it's just a more normal form of communication, a newsletter, a forum. I don't know. But I figured that rather than try to figure it out myself, I would ask you, is there is there something that you wish we had, some way that you wish you had to connect to other people who watch the show, to discuss the episodes, to communicate with me, something I could give you, right, like a newsletter after the show that talks through it a little bit more, a little bit differently? I've been trying to think about this. I don't feel like I have a brilliant idea on it, but I'm I'm hoping some of you do. My email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, Kleinshow at Vox.com. And I appreciate any thoughts you may have. Uh, So here, without further ado, is Doris Kearns Goodwin. All right. Well, thank you all for being here. Um, Everything is great. There will be nothing to talk about. (laughs) So I wanted to begin. So we're in D.C. And one of the things that has happened in the Trump era has been the complete destruction of our attention span. (laughs) The, The ability to focus outside the morning tweet to just get all the way to the afternoon presidential tweet storm has become, I think, a genuine problem. So what does it look like to look at this period with the training of a historian. How is it different than those of us just caught in the ephemera of it?
1: Well, you know, I think what happens when you're an historian, you've lived in other periods of time. I mean, I've spent 10 years living during the Civil War with Abraham Lincoln. I spent longer than it took World War II to live with Franklin and Eleanor. I spent seven years with Teddy and Taft. So if you catapult yourself back, back in those different times, and of course, I knew Lyndon Johnson when I was a young girl and worked with him in the White House and accompanied him to his ranch. So even as I look at today's world, I start thinking about what it was like to live in those other worlds. Maybe that's what's weird and crazy about an historian, but right now it gives me a certain solace because everybody says to me, are these the worst of times? And we might feel so. It feels like our moorings are under question we have this sense of frenetic activity, alternative facts, not knowing where the country's heading, where is our identity. And yet, when I live back at the time, if I imagine myself a young person or even an older person like me in 1860, 1861, 1862, and what it must have been like to live in that time when the country was splitting apart, when more than 600,000 people were dying, when Abraham Lincoln said if he'd ever imagined the anxiety he would feel when he came into office, he wouldn't have known he could have lived through it. Or I sometimes think of myself now back in Teddy Roosevelt's time. And it's the time most similar to ours in many ways, because the Industrial Revolution had shaken up the economy much as the tech revolution and globalization have done today. There was a lot of anxiety about the gap between the rich and the poor. Immigrants were coming in from abroad. New inventions were making people worry about the pace of life. We talk about the pace of life now, and they thought, oh, my God, the automobile has come into being. There's this telephone and the telegraph. We used to just write letters to people. We could walk somewhere. We had a horse, and people were nervous about that. They had a lot of depressions that turned at the 20th century because people felt the pace of life was speeding up too much. The rural areas felt cut off from the cities. Or obviously, if I go back and think of what were I myself growing up or any of us in the Depression... You know, when the banks had collapsed, your savings were gone, you couldn't get the jobs you hoped for, and there was a real feeling that capitalism was potentially at an end. So I think in some ways it gives you a sense of the layers of history. It's probably a weird profession that I've, I've undertaken to spend one's days and nights with dead presidents. Um, I wouldn't change it for anything in the world. My only fear is that in the afterlife there's going to be a panel of all the presidents that I've ever studied, and everyone is going to tell me everything I missed about him. And the first person will be Lyndon Johnson. How come those damn books on the Roosevelt's were twice as long as the book he wrote about me?
2: This book is about four of our greatest presidents, but you have a much broader sense of presidential history than, say, I do, because I've forgotten most of the presidents from the 1800s. Who is the analog to you, if anyone is, to Donald Trump?
1: I'm not sure there's truly an analog. I mean, even just looking on the surface, Obviously, no president has come into the presidency without any political experience or any military experience. So he's outside of that normal realm. But, you know, in a certain sense, you and I were talking inside, and you raised a really interesting question about maybe all these people who become presidents, that there's something weird about them, you know, to want to be president, to want that pressure that you're going to feel. Lyndon Johnson said, I was just remembering it, that being a politician is like a strange duck, Anyone who gets down on his hands and knees to want the vote of a person, to give them a sense of themselves, there must be something obsessive about them. And then he said to his friends, you know, I may be a little crazy during an election, but just think of me as a seriously ill, dear relative. Once the election passes, then I might get normal again. So none of my guys were ordinary people. You know, I mean that's no ordinary time was the book. This was these are no ordinary people. I mean Lincoln suffered from a depression so deep at one point that he thought about killing himself and they took all knives and razors and scissors from his room. Teddy Roosevelt had that desire to be the center of attention, just like Mr. Trump does. They they said he wanted to be the baby at the baptism and the bride at the wedding and the corpse at the funeral. <laughs> um, and he needed that center of attention. You know, I mean Franklin Roosevelt as you pointed out, really, his optimism was sometimes, as you said, greatly delusional. And and Lyndon Johnson, I mean, we all know that he was a complicated character. I mean, I went back to the ranch recently, and I, I was able to see I had lived there during the time of helping him on his memoirs. And there was a chair in the closet where he wanted me to sit whenever he took a nap because he was so afraid of being alone. So I went and sat in that closet, in that chair again, and I'm thinking, this is really strange.
2: <laughs> I, I want to hold on this for a second. Do you think there's a connection between the qualities that would make someone want to be president and able to be president and certain kinds of mental illness?
1: <laughs> no, I'll tell you what. I think, I think what I think, and I, I'm not sure I think... I'm is- surprised
2: that was a laugh line. <laughs> it's not funny. <laughs>
1: Here's what I think. I think anybody who wants to be president, who spends their life in pursuit of an ambition that is so fierce that it never stops until you reach that point, there's something driven about them. There's an engine that can't stop. That's what they even said about Abraham Lincoln, that his ambition was an engine that could not stop. But the best presidents are those that they can transform that personal ambition to just get power into something larger, where the ambition is for the fulfillment of the country, and it's larger than themselves. And when that happens, it gives them a certain kind of foundation, I think, so that when they make decisions, they're not making it just on the basis of themselves anymore. They're basing it on what they think is right for the country. I mean, at a certain point in 1864, when even after the victory at Gettysburg, um, the war was going badly, hundreds of thousands of people still dying. The North was beginning to feel restive about the Emancipation Proclamation. They were legislatures passing, saying maybe we should secede from the New England states, those abolitionist characters. They just wanted some sort of peace talks to come and end this war, even in the North. And people came to Lincoln, the Republican leaders, and they said to him in August of 64, you will never win the election in November unless you're willing to start compromising on emancipation. And there, of course, he wanted to win that election. He knew it would be a validation of his leadership. He wanted it more even than he wanted that first election. But he knew at that point, he said, if I ever sent the black warriors back into slavery, I would be damned in time and eternity. Go away. I won't even talk about trying to compromise the peace. So they went away disconsolate, thinking that he would lose the election and then chance intervened, and Atlanta fell, the mood of the North changed, and he won the election. But he won it with union and emancipation intact. So it's those moments you look for in your leader when they can transform that crazy ambition to just want to be on the top of the world in the White House into something bigger than themselves.
2: One of the things that was an interesting theme of the book, to to go a little bit back to our, our discussion about attention, is the way that different presidents you profile found space away from not just the stresses of the job, but the noise of it. Can you talk a little bit about that and and what role you think it played for them?
1: Yeah, I think this is a really important question because even if they have enormous pressures on them, they somehow knew themselves well enough to know how to find not only the time to think, but to sort of get away from the pressures and relax and replenish their energies, I think it's an unheralded leadership strength and one that all of us may need to think about today because we feel so so buffeted by everything that's happening as your first statement talk, the anxieties of every day. And we carry our cell phones and our email with us wherever we go. And however busy we are, we're probably not as busy and frenzied as these guys were with the Civil War, the Depression, and World War II. And yet they found the time. Lincoln actually went to the theater more than 100 times during the Civil War. He said when the lights went down and a Shakespeare play came on, for a few precious hours, he could imagine himself back in Prince Hal's time at the War of the Roses, and he could relax. He found enormous relaxation in his sense of humor. In the worst moments of the cabinet tensions, he would tell a funny story. He said humor allowed him to whistle off sadness, that a good story was better for him than a drop of whiskey. Teddy Roosevelt spent two hours every afternoon exercising, you know, a wrestling match, a boxing match, Or his favorite form of exercise was here in Washington. He would go on a hike in the wooded cliffs of Rock Creek Park. And he had this rule that you had to go point to point. You couldn't go around any obstacle. So if you came to a rock, you climbed it. You came to a precipice, you had to go down it. So there's great stories of all these people just falling by the wayside as they're trying to follow him in the woods. (laughs) But the best story was told by the French ambassador. He was so excited, he said, to be walking with the president that he wore his silk outfit. He thought they'd be walking in the tuileries, and he finds himself in the woods running after Roosevelt, and they finally, they come to a stream, and he says, thank God, this is over. He said, judge of my horror, when I saw the president unbutton his clothes, and I heard him say, it's an obstacle, we can't go around it, so no sense in getting ourselves wet. So I, too, for the honor of France, took off my apparel. However... He said, I left on my lavender kid gloves. Should we meet ladies on the other side? It would be most embarrassing if I didn't have on my gloves. So I mean, it's crazy, right? But the best one of all is is Franklin Roosevelt. He has a cocktail party every night during World War II. And the rule is you can't talk about the war. So he says, nobody can mention the war or politics. We just have to talk about gossip. He loved gossip. Or maybe talk about movies you'd seen or books you'd read. And after a while, this cocktail party was so important to him that he wanted the people who would go to the cocktail party to be actually living on the second floor of the White House to be ready for the cocktail party. So Harry Hopkins, his foreign policy advisor, came for dinner one night, didn't leave until the war came to an end. Missy LaHan, the secretary, lived with the family in the White House. It becomes the most exclusive residential hotel. A princess from Norway in exile in America lives with them on the weekend. A friend of Eleanor's has a bedroom next to Eleanor, Lorena Hickok, and the great Winston Churchill comes and spends weeks at a time in a bedroom diagonally across from Roosevelt's. So when I was working on the Roosevelt book, I became obsessed with the thought of all these people in their bathrobes at night as they gathered in the corridor and surrounded by these bedroom suites. And I kept wishing... When i would up there with Lyndon Johnson when I was 24, why didn't I ask, where was Churchill, where was Roosevelt, where was Eleanor? But I wasn't thinking in those terms, obviously, when I was 24. So I happened to mention that on a program when I was here in Washington, the Diane Reem show, And I said, God, I'd love to see the White House again and imagine where they were then. And suddenly Hillary Clinton called me at the radio station, and she invited me to a sleepover in the White House. (laughs) She said we could then wander the corridor together and figure out where everyone had slept 50 years earlier. So a couple weeks later, she followed up with an invitation to a state dinner... After which, between midnight and 2 a.m., the president, Mrs. Clinton, my husband, and I, with my map in hand, went through every room and figured out, yes, Chelsea Clinton is sleeping where Harry Hopkins was, the Clintons were sleeping where FDR was, and they gave us Winston Churchill's bedroom that night. There was no way I could sleep. I was certain he was sitting in the corner drinking his brandy and smoking his cigar. In fact, that bedroom is the scene of another naked story. When Churchill first came there after Pearl Harbor, he and Roosevelt were set to sign a document that put the Axis powers and the Allied nations against one another. But the Allied nations were calling themselves the Associated Nations, and no one liked the word. So early that morning, he awakened with the whole new idea of calling them the United Nations against the Axis powers. He was so excited, he had himself wheeled into Churchill's bedroom. But it so happened Churchill was just coming out of the bathtub and had nothing on. So Roosevelt said, I'm so sorry, I'll come back in a few moments. But Churchill incredibly stands up straight and said, oh, no, please stay. The prime minister of Great Britain has nothing to hide from the president of the United States. (laughs) So the next morning, I couldn't wait to go in the bathtub. And then I truly felt I was in the presence of the greatness of the past.
2: Something here in those stories makes me wonder about is whether we know it's gonna sound weird as a response given the final story, but too much about our (laughs) presidents now. I think about the story you tell about FDR, having a cocktail party every night of World War II where you can't talk about it. And I imagine what the press would do to a president who did that today during a war where huge numbers of Americans were dying. Is there a way in which the level of scrutiny on the presidency is degrading the ability of the people who hold it to hold it well?
1: It it may only not only be degrading the ability of the people to hold it well, but it may be changing the numbers and the kind of people that want to get into public life in the first place. I mean, you wonder why it seems that there's been a diminishment in the quality of the people that we see in Washington. Maybe it's just because we're living with them. But there was something different, I think, in the earlier time. When you look back at what it felt like when there was bipartisan legislation, when they stayed in Washington on the weekends and they played poker and drank together and they could be friends together, their private lives weren't exposed in the same way that they are now. And maybe some people who don't want that to happen are not willing to enter public life, so those people with those obsessions are the ones that get in more likely. I mean, think about what it was like even for Franklin Roosevelt— um, he had made the decision. We made may made have made wished that he hadn't made it, that the country would not accept him if they knew he couldn't walk on his own power. So there was a code of honor on the part of the press. It's impossible to imagine today that they'd never take a picture of him with his braces on in his wheelchair, show him being carried from one place to another. If a younger photographer came by and tried to snap such a picture, the older ones would snap the camera from the ground. I mean, there's this amazing moment in 1936 when he's coming to the... Democratic convention. He could seem to be walking if his braces were locked in place, and he could hold on to two strong arms as he's coming down the aisle. But he really wasn't able to propel himself forward. If he shook somebody's hand, his braces unlocked, he fell on the floor, his speech sprawled out all over the place. He says to them, clean me up. He gets back to the podium, and he delivers the Rendezvous with Destiny speech, one of the great acceptance speeches. There's not a picture of him on the ground. There's no mention of the fact that he fell. And think about it today when Gerald Ford fell down the stairs. We watched him falling a 100 times, even though he was one of the most athletic presidents. When President Bush was sick in Japan, we watched that episode. Um, Hillary and, Clinton. And Hillary Clinton, when she nearly fainted, presumably going into that car. It's as if there's a desire to catch these people in these exposed moments, much less whatever womanizing affairs they've had before or what their divorces have been like. So it's a question of the balance. I mean, what seemed truer earlier was whatever was important in the private lives that affected their public responsibilities was just for a newspaper's expose or a newspaper's coverage. But now some of the private lives may have nothing to do with their public. If it does, then it's important. But I think sometimes we just do it for the pleasure of knowing every bit about them.
2: There's a way in which I wonder if Donald Trump is some kind of subconscious public counter-reaction to that. We've had these presidents who... Bill Clinton, for one, they would have these scandals and then we would create scandals out of smaller things. I mean, I remember Barack Obama's tan suit gate where he had the temerity to wear a suit that was neither blue nor black, but it was tan. (laughs) Oh, wow. And, you know, like, he was almost impeached. And and then you get... Tan suit gate. And (laughs) then you get Donald Trump, who just floods the system with so much personal misbehavior so much scandal so much eccentricity that it's like the whole thing melts down and now pay off a porn star during the campaign like it's a day-long story like we got we got other things to worry about i wonder if we're seeing a change in this in an era of oversharing it's like we have the oversharing president and we're just seeing that there's some level at which we've stopped caring
1: yeah i mean that's a really scary thing i mean If we've stopped caring, are we inured to what's going on? Are we so accustomed to some other scandal coming day after day, or some indignity, or some more coarse language, or some terrible treatment of somebody? It would say something troubling about us, I think. And that is the one thing that I worry about. Although I say I feel this reassurance by knowing that we've gotten through these tough times before, and somehow we came out of them. But the way we came out of them was not simply the leaders who were there, but the citizens who were awakened to knowing that they had to move something forward. When Lincoln was called a liberator, he said, I'm not the liberator. It was the anti-slavery movement that did it all. Without the progressive movements, citizens got awakened to the needs of somehow softening the terrible aspects of the Industrial Revolution. So settlement houses were formed. There was a social gospel in the churches, and it was that foundation that helped Teddy Roosevelt. Clearly, without the civil rights movement, LBJ couldn't have done what he did, the women's movement, the environmental movement, the gay rights movement. The question is, what are citizens doing now I mean, I know there's marches, I know there's activism, there's more women running than ever before who never did. There's all these signs that citizens are being active, but the question is how to channel us so that we don't accept what's happening as normal, because it isn't normal. I mean, it can't be normal unless you've got some deep, and you may, you may be the new Dr. Freud. Maybe you figured something out. That just sounded quite brilliant and scary, what you were saying, that maybe we've just gone so far in that other direction that he's our subconscious saying, Stop, let's get it. But maybe once we get it all out of our system, we can go back to some dignified kind of precedent and some dignified kind of course, uncourse language in our political dialogue.
2: I am known for my Freudian analysis. <laughs> so the, the book, Leadership in Turbulent Times, available both here and in bookstores near you, is. Uh, <laughs> It has a three-act structure. The the first act for, for each of these men is their early years where the sort of ambition is unlocked in them and, and, and we see what they wanted. The second act, which seems to me in many ways to be the heart of the book, is their period in the wilderness, something some kind of trauma, tragedy, dark night of the soul they go through. And then the third act is a study of their leadership in a time of crisis. We can't go through all of them here, but I, I wanted to talk about FDR's second act, because that was a story that I knew that I had learned in school that he had polio. And I had not had any idea until I read this book of what that had actually meant. And so could you just talk a little bit about when he got polio and what that experience was like that, that period in his life?
1: Yeah, I don't think I knew as much about it as I learned by really trying to figure out what did this mean to him personally. I had known it too, but not at the level that I I think I learned about it in these last five years. I mean, here's this intensely athletic man who loved to, to ride horses, to play tennis, to run in the woods. And he goes to Tampa Bello, and he wakes up one day and just doesn't feel too well, but he spends the entire day in exercise, swimming, coming back, running back. By the time he gets home, he's so tired he can't even take off his wet bathing suit. He climbs the stairs to go to bed, and he's never able to walk on his own power again. And there were months. How old is he? He's in his 30s, in his late 30s. Um, He's already been a state legislator. He's been an assistant secretary of the Navy. He was um, a vice presidential candidate in 1920 on a ticket that they knew the Democrats wouldn't win, but yet was poised to possibly become a presidential candidate. And then for months, it's not even clear that he'll live, much less walk again. But then he began to develop the idea, I'm going to do this somehow. But there's years of anxiety and depression. I mean, he tries everything he can, every experiment that comes his way and he's able to get himself stronger in his chest and his back. He lets the people take him out of the wheelchair in his library at home and crawl around the library floor for hours to strengthen his chest. And then he tries to tackle stairs, and he hoists himself up one stair at a time. But then when he gets to the top, they have a huge celebration. It's almost like they break out the champagne with every small win. He later said, when he was asked, how can you deal with the pressures of the presidency, he said, if you spent two years trying to wiggle your big toe and you were finally able to do it and you felt great, you wouldn't worry about the pressures of the presidency. But the pressures on him were still intense. When he finally decides he's going to try and come back in public life in 1924, Al Smith asks him to give the nomination speech at the Democratic convention. And up till that point, he hadn't really been seen much in public. He knows he's going to have to seem to be walking from a certain distance to the rostrum, and he's not sure he can make it with his cane. He practices at home hour after hour that same distance. They cut out the distance of what it would be. When he finally got to the podium that night, he was sweating. He was so anxious, and then he delivers this happy warrior speech, and that huge smile comes on his face, and he sort of knows maybe I can do this, but still he's not sure, so he still tries to walk again, and he found the rehabilitation clinic at Warm Springs. And that's really where I think his leadership changed, from that ambition for self to ambition for other people. He made himself vulnerable in front of all these other polio patients who came there. They would swim together in the pool, and they would exercise their legs, but then he decided they needed to have joy in life again. So they played water polo, they played tag, he had wheelchair dances, he'd have cocktail parties there at night too, and amateur theatricals. And they said about him that he was the spiritual therapist. He was Doc Roosevelt. He was so happy with the title, Doc Roosevelt. And he made them feel that there was a purpose and joy in their life again. So he emerged from that experience, which was really years in the making, much more warm-hearted, connected to other people to whom fate had dealt an unkind hand. He was more empathetic than he had been before. And then he, of course, comes into the presidency facing a psychological and an economic depression and who better than he to have the optimism, which he never lost, except for—I shouldn't say he never lost it. There were periods of time when his secretary, Missy Lahan, said they were on this houseboat in Florida, and he wouldn't emerge from his room until noon or 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And then when he emerged, the smile and the other face would go on. But underneath was the feeling that maybe he had lost not only his entire career, but lost his chance to have any kind of normal life again. So it's an extraordinary story. I mean, it is, it's so moving, and I think it changed him forever. Even when he's president, there are times when he has to be carried from one place to another and let himself be vulnerable, and he just allows it to happen, but he got the fulfillment of knowing that he had come back from that, and coming back from that, I think, gave him an enormous degree of confidence. He already had a lot, but it gave a different, deeper kind, a wiser kind.
2: What was the process of writing this book like so you have written a book on each of these presidents before and this book took you five years so what did you have to do to write this book that you had not done in writing the previous books.
1: Yeah, I think that I thought it would be easier than it was because I thought I knew my guys as I like to call them.
2: That's how I felt about the book I'm writing too.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure maybe we all feel that. You know, it's it, it's but this one I thought I've spent 50 years almost with these people. I should know them, but somehow the kind of questions I was asking, you know, where did their ambition come from? When did they first see themselves as a leader? When did other people's look at them as a leader? When did they find their vocation? Did the man make the times or the times make the man? These were questions I used to ask myself when I was in graduate school. We used to sit around at night drinking and asking these questions, which sounds rather nerdy, but it was so much fun. It was more personal. It was getting in psychologically to them in a way that when I was writing these sprawling biographies, I have the families, I have the colleagues, I have the history and birth to death. It was a different thing. This was just looking at them through these leadership questions. So for example, when I looked at them as young men, I hadn't really thought about the fact of what was it like when they ran the first time for public office. I wanted to do that so that other people could watch them when they're still struggling. A college student had asked me a A question one day when I was lecturing about Lincoln, how can I ever become him? How can I ever become one of those guys when it's too remote? They're already there. So I figured if the reader could find them when they're still struggling with whether this is what they want to be, if they're going to make mistakes, they're going to wilt under pressure, under cockiness, and we can then identify with them. So for example, I mean, Teddy Roosevelt, when he comes into office at 23 years old, he develops a real swelled head, and he admits that later. He said he started pounding the desk with his fist, and he would yell at his opponents, and he made headlines throughout New York State. But then he learned that he couldn't get anything done in the state legislature, so he had to reduce the way he was screaming and yelling and learn cooperation, and he wasn't all-important. So you see him learning from his mistakes. That's the key, I think, to one of the leadership traits is that humility to be able to acknowledge that you've got limitations. The great thing about Lincoln is when he ran the first time, he's 23, he has this remarkable statement. Even then, he's somewhat otherworldly. His statement that he gave to his constituents as to why he was running for the state legislature the first time says, every man has his peculiar ambition. Mine is to be esteemed of by my fellow man and to be worthy of that esteem. You know, I I don't know you all very well. I've only been here for six months, and I don't have any popular relations to recommend me. And if the voters decide in their judgment not to let me have this election, I won't be too disappointed because I've been familiar with disappointment my whole life. But then he says, "Um, but I'm telling you, if I lose, I'm going to try again. In fact, I think I'll try five or six times until it's too humiliating and too dejecting. And then I promise you I'll never try again. I mean, that's incredible, that resilience, that perseverance that's with him when he's young. I mean, Lyndon Johnson, even though I had known him, obviously, I hadn't thought about him really as a potential leader when he's young. And even when he's four years old, I think he's thinking of accumulating power. He sees his father in the state legislature. He wants to be him. So even when he gets to college, he decides, how do you how do you decide um, how you're going to absorb knowledge and find a mentor to help you get to the next rung of power? Ah, he says, the thing to do is to get close to the person who has the power. So he wants to get close to the president of the college. So what does he do? He takes a job as a janitor mopping the floors outside the president's office so he can talk to the president. And before you know it, he's invited inside the president's office to run messages. Before you know it, he's the clerk in the president's office. Before you know it, he's running the president's office. And then that same pattern, which I hadn't thought about, really, of finding a mentor, keeps him the rest of his life. When he goes as a chief of staff to the congressman who'd just been elected from Texas, he realizes that he's going to be living in a in a hotel where all the other congressional secretaries lived, and he needs to find the ones who know the most, who can teach him the most, be his mentors. So how does he do that? He goes into the bathroom in the morning, and he brushes his teeth four different times every 10 minutes so he can start talking to more people and see who knows the most. And then he takes four showers at night so he can talk to more people to see who knows the most. And somebody said that within six months, he knew more than somebody who'd been there for 25 years. So I just hadn't thought about these guys in that that way. So I felt like I was seeing them anew. It was really fun.
2: And, and how do you do that learning? Is that time in the library? Are you reading their letters? I mean, what, what was a Tuesday like in year two of this project?
1: <laughs> what was a Tuesday like? I mean, the main thing that I get the most out of are letters diaries, oral histories, the people who are writing at the time about it. I don't know what historians will do 200 years from now. They'll have so much stuff about us. They'll see how we walked and talked. They'll be able to watch us in three dimensions. When we were working on the Lincoln movie, the only reason we knew that Lincoln had a high-pitched voice is somebody wrote it in a letter or a diary. We knew he walked like a laborer who came at the hard, at the end of a hard day, not because anyone had watched him walk, but because somebody described him that way. So look at what they'll know about us. But I don't know that they're going to know the intimate details that came from people writing letters the only form of communication at the end of the day, Seward, for example, Lincoln's secretary of state, was away from his wife. He wrote thousands of letters to I love them. There's nothing more than looking over the shoulder of somebody writing a handwritten letter, and they're talking about seeing the same moon as their wife and sharing that, but yet they're gossiping about whatever happened that day. And they kept diaries, and those diaries, they may have been self-seeking, but they're there every day. So I don't think I could easily spend my Tuesdays just interviewing people. That's a journalist skill. And the trouble for me, I think, is I always would be talking too much if I was interviewing somebody, and I'd need to be listening to them, but I'd want to entertain them at the same time as they're giving me information. So I need that written word. And I always wake up early in the morning. I wake up at 5 or 5.30. I never look at emails until I begin to work on whatever it is I'm doing. And I had oral histories in front of me. I had these diaries. I had these letters. Some of them I had to get anew by going back to the libraries that I'd already been to before. Some of it is now digitized, which is terrific. And then I would begin to edit whatever I'd done the day before just because it's too scary to write. And then by the time it was time for breakfast, my husband and I would have breakfast and read the newspapers at 8 or so. I had already gotten that really most important work done in the morning. And then the rest of the time you can keep going, But and then the world intrudes. But I loved those hours more than anything.
2: You just touched on something I'm so fascinated by. So I've been reading, um, in addition to your book, a lot of early American history because I don't want to be here right now. <laughs> and so... <laughs> And, and I'm struck how much it's letters, right, how much is revealed in these letters from John Adams to Abigail Adams, from Thomas Jefferson to James Madison. And I think about the future where everything is going to be like slack messages between people or text messages, and it's going to be like sup" with like the smiley face with the little tongue. <laughs> and like that's going to be the answer to what your boss was like, like maybe that was sarcastic, is it had a winky face? Do you think? future history is going to be very different because of how different how different and more in time but also thin our communication styles are, how much more real-time but thin our communication
1: styles are? I do. I, I can't imagine what it would be like if I were to live another 50 years. I'd have to go even further and further back in time rather than write about anybody between now and when I died. I mean, what letters provided people were a way of thinking while they're writing. I mean, James McPherson wrote a wonderful book about letters from the Union soldiers to their homes. And these soldiers are not educated, many of them. They wrote better than many college students could write today, because it's the way you communicated. You you had to. That's that's your lifeline to the people you love. There's no telephone. There's no other way you can do it. I mean, the, the period of time, so we have the letters. We have the diaries from those periods. You know, we have email now, perhaps. Some of that may be saved, may not be saved. And we've got, as you say, the Snapchats and the Instagrams, what's going to happen to them. The worst period of time that we've lost for history forever are the telephone period, when we communicated by telephone. And except when people... Tape their telephone conversations, as indeed Lyndon Johnson did. The way to have Lyndon Johnson come back to life will not be through letters, not be through diaries particularly, although some people writing about him will tell you a lot, but through these taped telephone conversations. You hear him, you see him come alive as he's trying to persuade a congressman to do what he wants the congressman to do, to come with him on civil rights. First of all, that he calls them at six in the morning, at noon, at midnight. He calls a senator. You see it on the thing at 2 a.m. I hope I didn't wake you up. No, I was just lying here looking at the ceiling. What about this ceiling? Hoping my president would call. And then if the if the if the, if the congressman doesn't answer you hear him saying let me talk to the wife if the wife isn't there can i talk to the daughter well now you got to get your daddy to come with me on this bill and it's an extraordinary example of charm and force when you hear the tapes the way he persuaded everett dirksen to break the filibuster and bring republicans to help him you know, first of all, you hear him saying to e- anything you want, Everett. What do you want? An ambassadorship? You want to have me speak in Springfield? You want a postmastership in Peoria? Anything. I'll give you anything. But then he says he understands that Everett Dirksen, too, cares about the future. So he says to him, You know, Everett, if you come with me on this bill and you bring Republicans to help the Northern Democrats break the filibuster, bring that desegregation law to the land, 200 years from now, school children will know only two names. Abraham Lincoln and Everett Dirksen. I mean, these are great, (laughs) these things. I mean, they're coarse, they're colorful, there's these incredible things that he's saying on them, but you're seeing a politician at work. There's a funny story connected to the tapes when years later, so I was there working on the memoirs, and we had these tapes. Some of them, they hadn't all been transcribed by the time he was writing his memoir, but they were the best source for any of the chapters. So many, many years later, I met the guy who was the CEO of Pepsi-Cola, Don Kendall, And he had been a friend of Richard Nixon's. And when Nixon first got into office, um, Nixon asked him to go to Johnson's ranch to talk about some private matter. So he said, I get to the ranch. Johnson's working on his memoirs. And he's very frustrated. He said, how am I going to remember these things that happened 40 years ago, 30 years ago? The only chapters that are any good at all were I had this little tape machine, and I pressed a button. I have verbatim conversations. So you go back and tell your good friend Nixon as he starts his presidency. Nothing more important than a taping system. (laughs)
0: All
2: of these men were elected in a time when the way you rose up in politics, at least partly, was through party deals and party bosses. Lyndon Johnson, uh, Abraham Lincoln is the product of very unusual deal-making. Teddy Roosevelt gets put up by a machine boss initially. Do you think that what our current system demands of candidates, of presidential candidates, how much more small it is, how much more public it is, do you think they could have been elected today? Do you think we're selecting for the same things still?
1: I don't know. You know, I mean, I think the um, the question of the primaries, where we can never go back to the parties choosing the nominees, I suppose, because it's more democratic to have the people choose them. But then you have to have trust that when people vote in a primary, they're really looking at the candidates and deciding which ones are better potential leaders than others. I mean, that's the question that the party leaders, they may have made mistakes, there are plenty of mediocre candidates, but they at least were trying to pick somebody who would be the nominee who could unite the factions of the party, who could potentially win the election. And and they understood, they knew these people because they're all fellow politicians. And now you have a system where the primaries go further back in time in terms of starting earlier and earlier. When people vote, are they really really intensely thinking about it. Before Tim Russert died, he and I talked about if only journalists in covering campaigns could look not simply at who zings who in these ridiculous debates that are not debates at all, who's raised the most money, the poison in the system is the money, and who says some promises that sound pretty good, but they've all come from somewhere. Most of the time, they would have come from public life. They may have been a mayor, a governor, a senator. Or even if they came from the business world, you could look at what kind of a leader had they been before. You know, the qualities that we talk about that are important. Did they have humility? Had they shown empathy? Did they build a team where people could argue with them? You know, were they able to communicate directly with and get trust among the people? Could they control their emotions? All of these things you can see by looking back at their pasts. And maybe it would be in a great essay that might be written by a great journalist, but it's not part of the public dialogue. It's rather who in these debates, which are nothing. I mean, compared to the debates in Stephen Douglas and Lincoln, which would be lasting for six hours, where they'd be philosophical and educational and, and funny and coarse at times, but so much deeper than these are. And here's again, these people, were, were they more learned than us? Maybe they were at some level. But I think we have to think about the primary system. And if the answer would be that Abraham Lincoln couldn't make it through the primary or FDR couldn't, then we're really in trouble in our country. And I have to believe somehow Lincoln might have to lose the beard and lose the top hat. Um, and there was I remember once when I was on um, John Stewart and I there's a picture of Lincoln that I love so much without the beard. And in it, I think he looks really rugged and even sexy. And I mentioned that to Stephen Colbert and Seward, and they thought I was crazy. Nobody really thinks of Lincoln as sexy, except for Doris Kearns Goodwin.
2: (laughs) So um, before I ask this next question, we are about to move to Q&A. We have two microphones right here and right here. Uh, people should make a violent rush up to them (laughs) to get good places in line. Pushing
1: people aside. Pushing (laughs)
2: people aside, yelling fire in a crowded theater. Um, Whatever you got to do to win, (laughs) to get tired of the winning. Um, There's a question I ask on my podcast, and I'm going to take Point of Privilege and ask it here, which is obviously the first book to read is Leadership in Turbulent Times. But what are three books that you've read that have influenced you as a historian or as a person that you would recommend everyone reads?
1: Well, the first book that I think had a huge impact on me as a potential historian, when I was in college, I read Barbara Tuckman's Guns of August. And she's such an incredible narrative writer. And It just dazzled me that somebody could not only write that well but could recreate that period of time before world war one and world war one and make me feel that i was living back in that time and the fact that she was a female and the fact that she was writing about war i mean it just dazzled me i can still remember what i felt when i read that book and she still remains one of the great narrative historians of all time she later wrote an essay where she said that the, um, the task of a narrative historian is to imagine, even if you're writing about a war, that you don't know how the war ended. So you can carry a reader with you every step along the way, from beginning to middle to end. And I'd been in the academic life before that, and I think the problem then was you're always trying to make points about things you know already and insert them into the story, and somehow that's what she was able to teach me. You just have to know only what the people at the time know. Let them feel the anxieties. Let them worry about what's happening. Let the end of the war come when it actually came. So that was a really formative book for me. I think, since I love storytelling so much, nothing will ever rival Leo Tolstoy. I mean, I keep reading War and Peace and Anna Karenina over and over again, and I, I love him. Oh, my God, I'd love to have met Leo Tolstoy. I mean, in fact, he has given, he gave me the ending for my Lincoln book because I found this interview that Leo Tolstoy did at the turn of the 20th century with a New York reporter, and he was talking about the fact that he'd just come back from a remote area, the Caucasus. I didn't want to end with Lincoln's death. I couldn't bear it, so I could end with the story. And he said that he was with these wild barbarians who'd never left that part of Russia, but they were so excited to have Tolstoy in their midst that they asked him to tell stories of the great men of history. So I told them about Napoleon and Alexander the Great and Frederick the Great, Julius Caesar, and they loved it. But before I finished, the chief of the barbarians stood up and he said, But wait, you haven't told us about the greatest ruler of them all. There was a man who spoke with the voice of thunder, who laughed like the sunrise. Who came from that place called America that is so far from here that if a young man should travel there he'd be an old man when he arrived tell us of that man tell us of Abraham Lincoln Um, it was stunning that Lincoln's name had reached this remote corner but then more importantly the newspaper reporter said so what made Lincoln so great after all and Tolstoy said well he wasn't as great a general as Napoleon not as great a statesman as Frederick the Great but his greatness consisted in his integrity and his character the ultimate standard for judging our leaders, what we should be looking for today more than anything else.
0: <laughs> oh, Sir, um, such a fan, and even more so today. I mean, both of you, the intellect, but uh, Ms. Goodwin, for years, uh, you're a phenomenal storyteller and thank you for being here. Um, From both a historical aspect and from an historian's aspect, in two great individuals who had an aura about them, both Lincoln and FDR, how do you reconcile, and I've just recently learned about Lincoln's problem with blacks. He was not uh, at all for the Negro at the time, but also being in this facility the concerns that the Jewish community has always held about how FDR was able to get that greatness, get the support of even the Jewish community, and what he did with respect to the concentration camps and dealing with whether it's the St. Louis or anything else. How does a historian reconcile those kinds of Uh, controversies? It's a
1: really important question. I think I'm not sure that you reconcile them. You try and look back to the context in which they made those decisions, which are so troubling. I mean, for Lincoln's case, in other words, what we're talking about is that in the 1850s, when he was in his debates with Stephen Douglas, he would accept the black laws, which were in Illinois. He didn't even try to overturn them at the time, which meant that blacks couldn't sit on juries. They couldn't intermarry. They obviously couldn't vote. And, and he didn't argue against them. He knew that if he argued against them, he'd be out of politics. The overwhelming majority of people, even in the North, didn't accept the idea of equality between blacks and whites. But then what you do, so you you, you feel disappointed as a person because you may want him to have been an abolitionist, to have been beyond his moment in the time. But then you remember that Frederick Douglass, the great, great abolition himself, when he met Lincoln, he said it was the first person he ever met, and he had met all the abolitionists who really treated him as an equal human being. So he had grown from that experience when he was younger. He obviously was was the person who did the Emancipation Proclamation and made the war about emancipation as well as about union. But you just see them as a moment in their time. It doesn't mean that you justify them for that, but you don't judge them from the outside and you put them in their time. It's a harder question about FDR. I mean, because such an extraordinary man without his leadership, perhaps, the Allies might not have won the war. Western civilization might have been undone. Hitler might have encroached on all of Europe, and yet you just keep wishing that he had understood more about letting more refugees into the country before Hitler closed the door forever. There are historical understandings of why that might have been so. That he um, that he that there was a fear that spies might be coming into the country. None of them are justified. And as Eleanor said, it was the great scar on his legacy, and I feel that way too, as was the incarceration of the Japanese Americans. And the only thing is, as an historian, you don't try and make a brief for them. You just present what they did. You might be disappointed in them for doing it at that moment, or sad, or feel it's tragic, and that yet you don't make that the whole of their life. There's the other parts. I'm not sure it reconciles it, but you certainly present it, and you let the reader decide himself how much do you balance the parts that really were we're tragic, we're wrong against the parts that were extraordinary and right. And then the reader makes his own judgment about the balance of this leader and self. Sir.
0: Thank you so much for being here, and thank you for your words. Um, I'm a local college student here in the Washington, D.C. area. Your book about Lyndon Johnson, is one of which I read in middle school, is one of the first biographies that I read. Several years later when I read your book about the Roosevelts, I read about how Eleanor Roosevelt interceded to allow a boatload of Jewish refugees to land in Virginia, and I was wondering um, I was wondering if you might be able to talk a little bit about that, and what did you find most interesting about that story and most important when you were doing research for your book about the Roosevelt's?
1: Oh, it's, it's a perfect question right after the last question because, I mean, Eleanor Roosevelt had the space in a certain sense as the first lady and not as the president to be morally the agitator. And she later recognized that. I mean, she could push at Roosevelt from the outside in. And then she knew that he had to deal with the political realities for the moment. And I mean, she's an extraordinary figure. Without her leadership, he would not have been the president that he was. She could speak truth to power. She was, as he said, a welcome thorn in his side, always willing to argue with him, always willing to question his assumptions. I mean, she argued for more Jewish refugees coming in, just exactly as you say. She also was, in, was much more of an arguer about discrimination in the army during World War II, when many of the army generals are just worried about getting the war won and not worried about a social revolution. She sent so many memos to General Marshall about discrimination in the army that he had to assign a separate general whose only task was to deal with Eleanor Roosevelt's memos. <laughs> She had weekly press conferences where only female reporters could cover her. So all over the country, female journalists got their first jobs and careers. And that was because of Eleanor Roosevelt's press conferences. But later, when he died, she realized that she had to become a politician as well as a moral figure. And she incorporated a lot of his absolute necessities of compromising, of figuring out which things mattered more. And she became a politician as well as an agitator morally. So I think it's a question of where somebody stands that they can take a position. She was very upset about his decision to incarcerate the Japanese-Americans. He was listening to the national security people saying it's a necessity, which of course now, in retrospect, seems crazy. But it's a really interesting idea about the outsider and the insider, and who has the freedom to do something that the other one doesn't.
2: Please. So I read your book about Teddy Roosevelt when I was deployed in Kuwait. And it felt like you were just screaming at all of us um, quietly that the issues that Teddy Roosevelt dealt with were just the same as the ones we're dealing with now, rising inequality, uh, major divisions in the country, big problems in the Republican Party. And so my question to you is simple. Teddy Roosevelt won. And what do you think was his, his secret sauce that he was able to win those battles?
1: Yeah, I think the main difference, you're absolutely right. I mean, as I said before, I think the industrial era and the tensions that arose and the populism that arose, there was a lot of anti-immigration at that time. The working class was in rebellion. There were lots of violence in the street. There were nationwide strikes. And Teddy Roosevelt came in as a progressive in a conservative Republican party. But he argued for something different from the deal, I think, that's happening today. He argued for a square deal for the rich and the poor, the capitalist and the wage worker. And when he came in, he had his base that had that that was behind him, but he knew that he had to expand that base. I mean, the difference is that when he was a candidate writing the book about the art of the deal and his later book, Trump said that the idea that both sides should win in a deal is just crazy. I mean, he said a worse word than that, but he said um, the only answer to a deal is that you have to win. And that's exactly the opposite of what Teddy felt. He was trying to balance, be a fulcrum point, between the capitalist and the wage worker. And he was able to become enough of a figure that he could mobilize public support through his relationships with the press. That's one of the huge differences, again, between Franklin Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, and our current president. Rather than the press being the enemies of the people, they were almost partners of these presidents. I mean, Roosevelt had a barber's hour every day. He would be shaved, the midday shave. I guess he must have been growing a beard more than we realized. And the barber would be sitting there trying to shave him with a straight edge razor. And he's got all the reporters surrounding him. And he's talking to them. And he's moving around. And they said the barber was amazing. But they could question him. They could talk to him. They could criticize him. Um, There's a moment when one of the famous journalists wrote an Um, a review, a negative review of his book about the Spanish-American War. And he said that he so placed himself in the center of every action, every minute of that war, that he should have called the book Alone in Cuba. As if he's, you know... So the whole country's laughing because this journalist was a famous journalist. And what does he do? He writes a letter to the journalist and he said, I regret to tell you that my wife and my intimate friends are absolutely delighted with your review of my book. (laughs) Now you owe me something. I've always wanted to meet you. So he was able to support the investigative journalists in that era who were they themselves were writing fabulous narrative stories about what was wrong with big companies swallowing up small companies, the corruption in the railroads, the corruption in Standard Oil. And then the public got mobilized, and it put pressure on the conservatives who controlled the Congress that they had to pass the regulations they needed. They had to accept the the antitrust suits. And so it was that relationship between the president, the press, and the country that made him able to take that populist resentment and put it into positive legislation that would begin to soften the Industrial Revolution and calm the waters. And that's the big difference. You can't lead a, a country with by faction, by stoking the base, by intensifying the angers and the, and the anxieties that are being felt. You have to try and bring that country together. He would take these whistle-stop train tours around the country, stopping at every place along the way for six weeks in the spring and the fall, talking to people, listening to their complaints, and making sure that he was trying to expand not only his progressives, but the conservatives becoming progressives. And then he would stand for hours just waving to people who would be standing at the little road crossings. And there's one moment when he's waving frantically at a group, only to find a rather cold reception until he's told, because he's nearsighted, he's waving frantically at a herd of cows. Little wonder that it won't work. But I think he understood that a president is a steward of the people. And his responsibility, when he was in the coal strike between the, the labor and the management, he said, my responsibility is to neither one. It's to the people. And this strike has to come to an end. And I'm going to figure out how to bring these two parties together to arbitrate it. And that's what he did. Thank you.
0: Please. Dr. Goodwin, your writing is poetic and prophetic, and I uh, wanted to thank you for writing such a beautiful, uplifting book in this uh, season of tabloid tell alls. It's just a shame it won't be read by the current resident of the White House because there's not enough cartoons in it. Um, being a writer and a researcher, I'm interested in the nuts and the bolts besides the journals and the uh, tapes and things of that nature. Um, as a researcher, what was the, the bulk of your researching? What other Things did you uh, t- you go to? What was your, your best go-to things to write uh, the, the, such in-depth work to these people? And I have a feeling you liked Lincoln a lot better than the other guys.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, in the old days, which I still loved, before things were put on, 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 the, on digital line, you'd go to the library, like the library at Hyde Park, and you'd spend weeks and months there in a way, and you'd be able to get the documents from the archives. You could actually see the documents... One of my favorite documents that I found early on when I was doing the the FDR and Eleanor book were the ushers kept a diary, at the end of every day, they would tell you everything that happened. When did Eleanor wake up? When did Franklin wake up? Who did they have breakfast with? Who did they have lunch with? Where did they go in the afternoon? That's how I first learned that Churchill had been there so much because you see Churchill, Churchill, Churchill. And, And then what I was able to do, once I had that, people had used the diary for maybe Pearl Harbor Day, or The Day He Died, or some D-Day, or something like that. But I took every single Usher's diary from 1940 to 1945, the this, this segment of that book, and I just was able, if I saw that Eleanor had breakfast with somebody, I could look for that person's letters, or that person's memoirs, to see what they talked about. Eleanor wrote columns every day, so I could read her column. If I saw that FDR had met with somebody, then I could look up his memoirs, and see what, I mean, that person's memoirs, or that person's diary, and see what they said. Not that I was going to reconstruct it day by day, but I had to think day by day. I mean, I think I always think chronologically. This happens, and then that makes that happen. And the more you can get into the actual routine of their lives so you can imagine them day by day, I think the more you can write a narrative story. Thank
0: you. Sir? Uh, Yeah, this question is sort of a do-you-agree question, but it's always struck me that there are uncanny similarities between Lyndon Johnson and Abraham Lincoln, Uh, They were both, I think they were our tallest presidents. They both had hard scrabble lives early. They were both great storytellers uh, and jokesters. And I think they were probably, maybe Roosevelt also, but they were probably the two greatest legislative presidents we've ever had. And their great triumphs were both civil rights legislation, the 13th Amendment on on Lincoln's part and the uh, Voting Rights Act and the uh, Civil Rights Act of 64 on Johnson's. Would you agree with
1: that? Uh, it's a really interesting thought. You know, in fact, if I'm arguing, which I do, that empathy is one of the most important qualities in a um, in a leader, both Lincoln and I think Lyndon Johnson were born with empathy. Maybe it because they both came from backgrounds that weren't as privileged as the two Roosevelts. Their world wasn't as insulated from other people as the Roosevelts was. Um, both Teddy and Franklin, I think developed empathy. As I mentioned, Teddy, through the experience of a politician just broadening his horizons, going to tenements, going to be a police commissioner, seeing the slums at night, he began to feel a fellow feeling toward other people. He said at first it was unconscious, but then he began to feel it. And FDR, through his polio, LBJ, showed when he was young a certain amount of empathy, which he then squashed, in a way, when he lost that first Senate race and became more conservative and went after wealth. But when he was teaching at Catula, a Mexican-American school, he showed what Lincoln showed as a young man. Lincoln would argue with young friends of his who would put hot coals on turtles to make them wriggle, that this is wrong to insert pain into any other person or any other animal. He would see a drunk man who might be lying in a ditch, and his friends would walk by. He'd go back and pick him up and take him home and put him by the fire. When LBJ was in his early 20s, he had to leave college for a year because he needed to make money. He became a teacher and a principal in this little Mexican-American school. And he saw, he later said, and even people at the time said he saw the pain of prejudice on these kids' faces. And he became everything in the school. He used his salary to get them sporting equipment. He um, was the teacher. He was the principal. He was the band leader. He was the drama coach. And he changed their lives in a certain way. He never forgot that feeling. And when he was young, he brought electrification to his hill country. He was a progressive New Dealer. Um, and then what happened is he goes up the system, and he runs for the Senate in 1941, and he loses. And for him, it's a repudiation of everybody he he was. It wasn't just an election loss. It was almost on a par for him as these other harrowing crises that took place to my other guys. And then he loses that edge that he had before, and he becomes more conservative to make win in Texas, and he um, pursues wealth. And then, actually, he becomes the majority leader, the most powerful majority leader, but without that sense of purpose that had first gotten to him when he was young. And then he had a massive heart attack in 1955, right after he'd been elected majority leader the summer after. And he said to himself when he came out of a depression, they all went into depressions, interesting. He said, "Um, what if I died now? What would I be remembered for? And so then that's when he started going into civil rights. Even as a senator, he got the civil rights bill through the, through the Senate and then became the civil rights hero in the 60s. I mean, had he not had the epic failure of leadership in Vietnam, he would be remembered as, as the best domestic president since Franklin Roosevelt. There's no question. Medicare, Medicaid, voting rights, civil rights, NPR, HB, you know, Head Start, um, PBS, immigration reform, fair housing— And he was just torn and wanting to keep driving that Congress to get one social justice legislation after another. So I think that sense of wanting to do something for the world, which was in Lincoln too. I mean, when he had that huge depression when he was young and his best friend came to his side, Lincoln was feeling like his huge desire to do something for the world and the reality of his circumstances was too big to bridge and he fell into a depression. And his friend came to his side and said, Lincoln, you have to rally out of this or you'll die. And he said, I know that, and I would soon die now, but I've not yet accomplished anything to make any human being remember that I have lived. So fueled by that ambition, he went through everything to become president, and that was what was on his mind when he signed the Emancipation Proclamation. Finally, his fondest hope had been realized. When LBJ signed the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, he knew that maybe he had a chance to be remembered by history for that. So oddly, there are some similarities in these two men, and sadly, of course... Lincoln was able to be an extraordinary leader of war, leader of his country in war, partly because he confided them. He knew, told them what was happening. And LBJ decided that he was going to keep the war and its failures from the people and keep the great society going. And it turned into his, his legacy being cut in two. But it's an, I hadn't thought about that perspective, but I think you're dead right.
3: Hi, um, you're a historian. Um, The vast majority of historians exist solely
2: in the academic realm. You have chosen to focus your productive energies on histories that we all read. I was wondering if you could say a little bit about why you made that choice and why you didn't focus on producing things just for other academics.
1: You know, what happened is that, I mean, I was indeed a young professor at Harvard, and I loved teaching. And then I found my husband. And I got married. He had a son from his first marriage. And I had two kids within 15 months of each other. So suddenly, I have three kids. And I'm trying to teach. And I had already written the LBJ book. And luckily, it had become a good seller, in part because of my crazy conversations with LBJ. So I had a contract for a second book. And I couldn't teach and write and be with the kids at the same time. So I had to make a decision. It wasn't so much a decision of leaving the academic world. It was a decision that I could either be a teacher or a writer and be a mother to the kids. So I decided I'd take a chance at being a writer, and I left the academic world. And I remember once I was in Cambridge at a cocktail party, and somebody not knowing, I, and I still was taking 10 years to write the next second book, and I heard somebody say, whatever happened to Doris Kearns anyway? Did she die? <laughs> and I wanted to hit them and say, I have three sons. That's what's happened to me. But I think what your question points out, I think once I was freed from the academic world, um, there is a tendency to write the way you want other people to... I mean, when I look at the Lyndon Johnson book, it's not a story in the same way that I think the other books are. I think that's what I like to think of myself as a, a storyteller more than anything, and I don't know how much that would be valued in the academic world. Although the great thing now, I think, there's a whole generation of journalists, I mean, of historians who are narrative historians, and they are planted in academic worlds, and it's more respected now than it was. It used to be that the more narrow the topic you studied, the more you could master it, the more you would be able to rise in that academic world. So I think in some ways the freedom from having to have jargon in what I was writing. There's some jargon in the LBJ book. I mean, I was thinking about what the other professors might think about what I was writing, and then all of a sudden, it's like a girdle being lifted from you. And, um, or as we would say today, a Spanx being lifted from you. Um, and I think it just allowed me then for the natural storytelling that I've, I've really loved since I was a kid to be able to come to the fore. And hopefully that's what people can respond to sometimes, even though it's girded, hopefully, in real research, in a way that it might not have been if I'd chosen smaller subjects in order to be an expert on two years or two months of, of some sort of subject matter.
0: Thank you for everything that you do. I absolutely love reading everything that you put out. Um, for these four leaders, how much do you attribute uh, their success and their accomplishments to the women that were behind them? Um, maybe for Teddy, um, Alice, but... And which one would you uh, of the of the women would you attribute the most to in, and in different different ways?
1: The women contribute in different ways. I mean, obviously no one of the four contributed as much in political terms and, and in policy terms as Eleanor Roosevelt did, but each of them in a different way was an important force in the leaders' lives. I mean, Mary Lincoln would be the one you would imagine was the least important or the most ineffective or the most troubling. I mean, a lot of male historians who've written about Mary in the older days would talk about what a terrible burden she was to Abraham Lincoln. And that's because they look at her during the First Lady's role... And she was difficult then. I mean, she had probably had some manic depressive tendencies. She was trying to get the White House to become a a more decorated place. She overspent the appropriations when the soldiers didn't have blankets. She was a woman from the South, so that four of her brothers were in the Confederate Army, so the Northerners didn't trust her. The Easterners thought she was a Westerner and not as dignified as they were. So she had an unhappy time in the presidency. And then her son died. Their son died at 10 years old in 1862, and she never really came out of that depression. But what that forgets is that you look back at the early time when they met, and she was somebody who believed early on in Lincoln's destiny. She was much more educated than he was. She loved poetry. She loved drama. She loved politics. Her father was a close friend of Henry Clay's, who was Lincoln's idol. So when they first met, she, her sister was married to the governor of Illinois, And he saw her surrounded by her bows. And he went up to her and he said, Mary, I want to dance with you in the very worst way. And then after they danced, she said, he certainly did, which one can imagine. (laughs) But even during those early losses, she believed in him. And I think that was an important... She used to count votes for him when he was in the early days. It just became more complicated later on. As far as Edith Roosevelt goes, in a similar way to some of the other women who I think's role was important, she gave him the stability and the um, family life that he needed for his manic tendencies. He could come home to those kids. He was still kind of jumping around with them and playing games, but he knew that that's where he had a sense of self. When he was always worried about losing an election, he would write letters to all of his friends saying, don't worry about me. I've had the best life. I have the most wonderful wife. I have this incredible family. I've had a great run for my money. And I think he truly felt that. So that she had no interest in public life. She said a woman's name should be in the paper only twice when she's born and when she dies. And she never gave a public statement, but she was there. She loved him. He loved her. And those kids gave him a sense, a rock of stability, I think. And I think the same thing could be said for Lady Bird. I mean, Lady Bird was an enormously stabilizing influence on Lyndon Johnson. I mean, I saw times when he would be just ranting about something, and she could just put her hand on his knee and say, now, Lyndon, you don't truly believe that, do you? Um, She was, and she had her own campaign of beautification, which was far more important than I realized, I think, at the time the word was so terrible. But it was really environment. It was flowers. It was making things beautiful again in the cities where people could see some sort of nature, even in the middle of a city. But most importantly, I think without her stability, and in fact, he I don't think he would have gotten through his life, much less his presidency. Um, and I, I had enormous respect for her. I was so glad that I got to know her. An extraordinary thing happened a couple weeks ago. I was at the LBJ library and Lucy Bird was there and she gave a little summation at the, I'd given a talk and we're at a dinner and she's like her father. She's a stem winder. So she came up to this thing, but she told a story that meant so much to me. She said that when her mother was in the last years of her life, she had had a stroke, and she couldn't read, she couldn't see, and she couldn't speak. And at some point in that period, Lucy decided to read aloud Team of Rivals to her so that her mother could hear it. And we went on for a while. And when they finished it, Lucy said, I think it's time to call Doris Kearns now. And and, she, and tell her how much you, you liked it. And I, when she called me, I couldn't figure out because I knew this, but not the depth of it until Lucy told the story. How was she going to express that she liked Team of Rivals? And then Lucy said, "Yes, mother, tell her what you felt." And then she suddenly clapped. It was an extraordinary moment to know that that was like cycling back. I hadn't seen her. I hadn't been back to the ranch in a long time. I finally went back to the ranch after Brian Cranston played LBJ in All the Way, the HBO movie. We had a premiere in Austin, and I actually was able to go back, as I said earlier, to the ranch and see that chair that I... See the kitchen, see the bedroom where I slept. And all of the memories were there of Lady Bird as well as LBJ. Miss?
3: Yes. Uh, from today, I think one of the things that didn't surprise me, but I was really glad to hear is that how much you admire some of the Russian classics, especially because what I see in you, I love biographies, but what I see in you especially, is that you make it very obvious in your titles and in your storytelling that you're not only telling the story of a man or a woman, but the story of the human condition. And some underlying, very deep issues that I think the Russians, like, which I also like, uh, classics, Dostoevsky told story like it's exactly what they talk about like they really go deep in the human condition like the psyche. So for me the question is how do you pick other than the subjects what story about the human condition you're going to talk about and what are you going to send as a message to the world?
1: Yeah I mean I think you know I'm not even sure it's a conscious thing but when Each of the books I started, because I was writing about people about whom so much else had already been written, 14,000 books about Lincoln, um, tons of books about Franklin Roosevelt, or even about Teddy, generational histories of Teddy, I knew I had to choose a storyline that got to me and that I was hoping would get to the people but also would give me an angle that would be somewhat fresh, hopefully. And it took me a while to figure that out for each of them. I did research for several years sometimes before I found my story. Um, With Lincoln, it obviously became his ability to put his rivals into his cabinet. And that was a larger, hopefully a larger mission for the country, that the importance of being able to let past resentments go. Put the best person in for the job, even if that person was better equipped than you and have the confidence that you could do it. So that became my story, not a biography of Lincoln, but these four men together as a team of rivals. When I started to write about Franklin Roosevelt, I thought, oh my God, there's so many biographies of him. What if I write about Franklin and Eleanor and their partnership? And what if I do the home front instead of the war front? Because I knew I couldn't probably understand the battles, but I knew that I was so interested in how the country had mobilized for the war, how we'd finally come together after the isolationism, and those factories got going, and there were 24-hour shifts, and the women came to work in the factories, and I was so glad to see how incredible they were. There's a great story. When when they first brought the women in, they thought, oh, my God, they're going to— you know, distract the men on the assembly lines. Their productivity is going to go down, and they'll never learn to operate these machines. And then, of course, by 1943, there was um, a, an increase, way increase in productivity when women were 60% of the workforce in the airplane factories and the shipyards. So these same factory owners decided we'd better do a study and figure out how these women had learned these complex machines so well and so quickly. I love the answer that came back on one of the study forms. They said it was simple. When a woman, unlike a man, was asked to operate a new piece of machinery, she would ask directions. (laughs) I think (laughs) any of us who ever drove with you guys forever know exactly what that means. But I think I tried to tell a story that would have human dimensions with it. So, for example, with Franklin and Eleanor, I think I wanted people to understand they had really had a really rough time in their marriage. He had had a relationship with another woman, Lucy Mercer, when they were married for 12 years. She offered him a divorce, um, and they eventually decided to stay together. Uh, But it gave her the freedom to go outside the marriage to find herself as Eleanor Roosevelt. And for people going through tough times and being able to come back and have a partnership that mattered something... I I thought that was a larger story even than Franklin and Eleanor as president and first lady. So I think in each of these books, I think you're right. I'm not sure I always find it, but I'm looking for something that people can find in their own lives. Even in this leadership book, even though it's about these people, the kind of ways that they deal with human nature, You know, as I say, controlling their emotions or being able to give purpose to a team or being able to you know, to just have curiosity and humility and empathy. Um, those are things we can learn from. And that's that's sort of what I hope. Maybe that old teacher in me is still alive, even though I'm not in the academic world anymore.
3: You've talked about resilience and how important that was. Where do you think this resilience came from in the people who you wrote about?
1: Oh, wow. You know, just like ambition is a mystery to me still, you know, where does a person's fierce ambition come you know, sometimes it might come from Lincoln's having lived in such a terrible environment that he dreamed of having another place to go through his books. Sometimes it may come from just having been the center of attention so long you want to replicate that later on. Um, I was talking to President Obama about this when I did this exit interview, and I was talking to him about Lincoln's every man has his peculiar ambition thing, and he said, I don't think I was thinking that way when I was 23. Maybe my ambition was simply to to make something of myself, to prove to my vanished father what I had become. Or maybe it was my race that made it happen. Um, And I'm not sure I could ever fully answer the question of ambition or the question of resilience. And it may be that early in life, somebody goes through something smaller, much less big than the big things that all of my guys had to handle, and they come through it, and somehow that gives them the confidence to be able to know that the next step that something happens, they will have it happen But I'm not sure whether it's not an inborn trait. Um, Hopefully, it can be developed. But I would say ambition and resilience are the two things that I still consider a mystery. I mean, how Franklin Roosevelt could come through that polio, how Teddy Roosevelt was able to bounce back after his wife and his mother died on the same day in the same house. He's in the state legislature. He gets a telegram that his wife has delivered a baby. They share cigars. And then a minute later or an hour later, another telegram arrives saying, your wife is dying and your mother is dying too. His mother had come to take care of his wife. She contracted typhoid fever, a case only for a week, and he got home in time to have her die and 12 hours later have his wife die. And the depression he cycled into was enormous. But he decided he had a way of medicating himself in a way. I think they have to know yourself to know how to get out of these things. He said he had to just ride his horse 15 hours a day and you could outride black hair, which is the word many people use for depression. He went to the Badlands. He became a cowboy for two years. And finally, he was able, he said, through exercise and through continually not thinking to go to sleep at night. But then most importantly, by being out West, he became a man of the West. He became a much more romantic figure than he would have been as this effete Easterner and he said he never would have been president, probably, if that hadn't happened. But it took years for it to heal. He thought he would never love again, and then he finally developed this lifelong, joyous marriage with his childhood friend, Edith Corot. And then once that resilience happens, I think it gives him resilience for other things that happen. But in the end, I think these are some of the mysteries that I'm not sure I was able to solve. So... You've ended it on a really nice note. The limitations of not only an historian, but somebody, except for Dr. Freud here. He may be able to tell us. Next time, he'll talk to us. (laughs) Please join me in thanking Doris Kearns Goodwin.
2: That's the show. Thank you for listening. Thank you to my producer, uh, Jillian Weinberger. My engineer, Griffin Tanner. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production, and we'll be
1: back next week.